if you are missing the note sheets and the uh, welcome packet that we usually give out to you when you come in, uh, don't worry, you can still get those things online. We would encourage you to check out our website, firstfamily.us. Uh, it'd be really important to get some of those things, especially so that you can stay in touch uh, with our prayer needs at this church. We need to be praying for each other and lifting up the things that are going on in one another's lives. So we really would encourage you <clears throat> to be actively looking out for one another through prayer. And uh, if you have questions of your leaders about um, how we're handling what's going on, feel free to contact us too. We're very open in the way that we, uh, the, the way that we try to lead the church. So we're always um, interested in discussions on feedback on how things are going, but we are grateful to be able to have God's Word in front of us, which is a constant through, through every storm. So if you've got your Bibles, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> we have begun a series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And last week, we looked closely at the underlying belief that anything that we can know about God's plan for salvation is revealed to us in the Word of God. Having established God's word as the guiding truth of salvation, the next three solas are going to declare and define the process by which God saves people from their sin. Our primary text today will be the same text that will be driving our learning for the next three Sundays. You can kind of look at the five solas like this. Scripture, sola scriptura, forms the foundation. The next three solas, sola gratiae, sola fide, and um, Solis Christus formed the structure of the building, and then that is all underneath the umbrella and the purposes of salvation, which is the glory of God, which in some sense forms the, the roof of the building. It covers it all. And so this passage that we're going to be studying today contains one of the most concise statements about the detailed nature of salvation that is found in all of the scriptures. You're probably most familiar with verses 8 and 9. But we're going to start at verse 1 today to set the passage up in its proper context. So I'm going to read for you out of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 1, and then we're going to read through to verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you bow with me as we ask God's blessing over our time in the Word together today? Father, we are a weak and simple-minded people, Lord. Compared to you, our wisdom is like foolishness. 
And so I pray, God, that as we come to the word, that you would give us a clarity that goes beyond our reason, a clarity that, that goes beyond our ability to observe and to calculate and to understand. Father, help us to know these things in our heart. Help us to put them together with the other things that you've already taught us. And may we continue this path of discipleship, ever growing in our likeness to Christ as we trust you more and more day by day. We thank you for all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Today is my fourth son's birthday. Justice is eight today, and he's really excited about the whole thing. Birthdays are a big deal for Justice, but especially, I think, he's excited about the gifts. When we think of gifts, we often think of things that we don't really need, but we get because of a special occasion, right? Today, I want to talk about an incredibly important gift that God gives to many. And I want us to be careful that we don't think of it as a gift that is just a nice bonus that God gives as a blessing. Something that we could live without. But with it, life is so much better. That is not how we're to look at this special gift that we're looking at today. The gift of grace is much more critically important than that. If JJ didn't get any presents today, don't worry, buddy. You're going to get presents. If he didn't, he would be very sad but J.J. would survive. If you don't get the gift of grace, sola gratia, then you will die having never really known God and having never experienced forgiveness for the sin that weighs your life down so heavily. Do you see how important this gift is? It is of critical importance. So before we get to the gift, we have to start with the problem that this gift is meant to overcome. And the Apostle Paul does that faithfully in verses 1 through 3. The first three verses of this set that we're studying this morning and for the next three weeks presents to us the conflict. And the conflict is this. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead when we enter this life. The conflict is not that life is generally good but we need Jesus to come and make it better. We need Jesus to come and make life great. That's not the conflict. The, that conflict is, is so much smaller than the true conflict that we battle against. The conflict is that apart from the grace of Jesus, what we think of as life is actually walking spiritual deadness. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 again if, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Just so that we know who Paul is addressing here, the apostle is writing these words in letter form to a church in the town of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the most important Roman cities. As you can see, it is quite a bit north and west of Israel, which is on the, uh, the left side of the screen near the bottom. Ephesus was an incredibly bustling city, with a robust trade network. And so there were many, many people from all over the land that would come through Ephesus. It was a place of great influence. And God had started a church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing a letter to that church to instruct them and to encourage them. So those who are reading this letter are those who have the gift of grace. They've been saved by faith. But Paul is looking back on the problem that God solved by grace because it's not something a believer should ever forget. It's not a problem that even after it has been solved for us that we should ever take lightly. 
So Paul says, you have grace now, you're saved now, but before you were saved, you were dead. Dead in the Greek is the word nekros, and we, we use that word today in some of our technical terms to describe deadness of skin, necrosity, um, and things of that nature. It means void of life, without the ability to respond to its surroundings, unviable. It means dead. Now, the kind of dead that Paul is talking about here is a very specific deadness. It refers to a spiritual deadness. And we know that because Paul goes on to say in the very next verse that they were able to act and respond in some realms of life. They just weren't able to act and respond in any way, shape, or form to God. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, they are acting. They are alive physically, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So they were dead in a very real sense to the things of God, to the things of eternity. They were, if you will, the walking dead, able to act to follow the ways of the fallen world, but unable to respond to God in anything resembling faith. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the fall of man in Genesis 2, 17, you might remember that God said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve failed. They ate of that fruit. And some people say, well, God didn't, Have them die right away. He put that off. No, actually, they did die that day. God's not a liar. They did die that day in a spiritual sense. They became dead to the things of God and had to be expelled from his presence. And I I trust and believe that Adam and Eve, through their repentance, trusted the Lord, and and I hope to see them in heaven one day. But they died that day that they, they broke God's law. And this deadness cut them off from their God. Not only could they not know him, they could not help but follow. Who does Paul say here in Ephesians chapter 2? The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we know who that is, don't we? That's the devil. In order to understand the magnitude of what Paul will say about gratia, about grace, starting in verse 4, You have to understand something very important first, that Paul is directly talking here not just to the Ephesians and how they used to live, but in a sense he's also talking to all humankind. Notice in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this problem was not something unique to the Ephesian church. They were not a particularly twisted and wicked people who were especially depraved and were therefore in need of a unique intervention by God called grace. No, the apostle here is describing the general state of any man or woman who has not yet received the free gift of grace that we're talking about this morning. And so Paul's description clears up many of our common misunderstandings about what sin really is. Sin is not just one of many paths that a neutral man can choose to walk. We don't start off with a moral blank slate. We start off spiritually dead. Our bodies might move and respond. We have a mind that can think, but our hearts are completely cold to the things of God. 
And so sin is all that we really know. We are not as bad as we could be by God's grace. And there are times in human history when God pulls back some of that grace that suppresses our disobedience and we begin to see the violent and reactionary nature of man. We begin to see how cruel we can be to each other. But, but realize we're not as bad as we could be. But every one of us is by nature bad at heart. Our spiritual deadness and the sin that flows from it makes us children of wrath. We are not born into this world as children of God. We are children of wrath, says Paul. And so there's a spirit of wickedness at work in those who are dead in spirit. Because God is good and God is pure, he is by his very nature opposed to us. Because God is in charge, God is responsible to judge the sins of those whom he has created. So he is beholden to judge us. He has to take care of the sin that we commit against him because he is the one and only judge. Now, if we don't know that this is the reality, if we're not aware of this deadness in man that is intrinsic to all of us, by the way, then we'll be constantly trying to solve the wrong problems with life. We'll be constantly trying to seek a cure for something that isn't really at the root of what makes us unhappy and discontent. The recent killing of George Floyd, a tragic loss. And we should speak out against it. But is racism truly the number one problem that we need to deal with in this life? Is it really the root of man's discontent? Or is racism the fruit of a deeper problem that is inherent in all of us? If we snatch the top off of this weed, will it not just grow up a slightly different weed in its place? We have seen that the wickedness of man sprouts up in the very outrage uh, rage of the people who are mad about the original sin. People are burning buildings down and attacking one another and speaking slanderously to their neighbor. So man has an intrinsic sinfulness that must be overcome if we hope to do any damage to this problem of racism in our world. Think of the solutions that we try that all fall short of solving our problems in life. We think that better laws will make us a happier, more peaceful people. They can make a difference to a degree, but they never eliminate sin. They never change the heart of mankind. We think we need better inspiration. Leaders who can, who can really motivate us and move our hearts to such a degree that we will feel comfortable doing what is right. But it doesn't matter how inspirational someone is. They might get you fired up for a moment, but if your heart doesn't change and your aim and goal is not to please the Lord, then you're going to eventually go right back to that nature that you were born with. We think perhaps there needs to be more penalty for sin, more guilt and more shame. Does that solve the problem? No. It makes more bitter sinners. Better distribution of stuff. Perhaps that will solve the problem. If we could all just have equal opportunities and equal wealth, then maybe people wouldn't be so cruel to each other. And every experiment that tried to do that has failed. None of these things, these human solutions, can solve a problem that is endemic to the heart of man. I think one of the gravest mistakes that we can make in trying to understand salvation is to assume that man is basically good. And I know that that is the, the feel-good sentiment of the world, that man is basically good. 
But there is such danger in seeing that because if man is basically good, why does he need saving? Why does he need a savior who would be willing to come and suffer in his place and shed his own blood for the washing away of their sin? It's been a while now since uh, I got a phone call just before Christmas. Just, I think uh, it was last year, about a year and a half ago. And my cousin James, who was 38, loved Jesus, great evangelist, a youth pastor, woke up, clutched his chest, struggled for about 10 minutes while his wife tried to help him and then passed away. He didn't know that he was sick. He had a heart condition, but it was completely unknown to him. And so he never got the help that he needed. And so a life that was a beautiful life was cut short early because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to deal with the thing that was truly threatening him. And if we think of man as being intrinsically good, we're in the very same boat, but on a much grander scale. Because if we think that our heart is basically good, but we just need to get a little bit better, then the cross of Jesus Christ is not going to make sense to us. Michael Horton said, If human beings are basically good and evil is attributable, to impersonal forces, structures, institutions, and upbringing, then the doctrine of grace, the essence of the gospel, is meaningless. If man is basically good, man doesn't need saving. He only needs fine-tuning. And that's all you hear about in far too many churches in America today and around the world, really. You hear sermons that are, here is how you can make changes in your life to become a better you. Do you see how that is entirely missing the gospel? What's missing from that equation? Christ, who gave his very life to pay the very real penalty of sin that we earned when we broke the rules of the God who put breath in our lungs. If I am basically good, but just need some minor improvements, think of this then God would be a monster for having sent his only begotten son to suffer and become sin for us. You realize that? If you were basically all right and God just needed to make you a little bit better and he gave the life of his son to do that just to make your life a little better, how cruel of a God is that? But God is not a cruel God. God is a God who loves us so much that he would not even withhold his own son but he would let his son Christ go to the cross knowing that his son has the power to overcome sin and death to make us not better people, but new people. That is grace. The heart of man is broken to such a degree that until Christ saves us, we haven't even experienced life the way that we were made to experience it. We are born physically alive, but dead to the truth, dead to real goodness, dead to the things of God. So what do we have to do to overcome this, Pastor? Tell me what to do. So show me how I need to change. And let me say again what Paul just said to us. We are dead. Dead people don't change. Dead people stay dead. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you see the uniformity of language that Paul uses there in Colossians? Very similar to what he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. What can a dead man do? Can he call himself back to life? Can he choose the good instead of the bad? No, he's dead. Can he acquire some kind of medicine, some spiritual remedy that will make him better and nurse him back to health? There is no health. He is dead. There's no spiritual life there at all. The things of God and his spirit are completely foreign to him. So being dead, there is no way for man to save himself. And I hope you can see the desperate state that we're in. If you can, then you are ready to see the beauty of the next few words that Paul writes here in this letter to the Ephesian brothers and sisters. You are dead. You are a child of wrath. You are blindly following the world. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here is the great intervention. We were dead in our sins. We did not desire God. We couldn't afford to purchase our redemption back. In fact, we didn't even want it if we could afford it. We were happy to be in sin. Things didn't just look bad. They were doomed and hopeless. But then God intervenes. God, with the infinite power and unlimited resources that only he possesses, has to determine to do what fallen man cannot do. God takes what was spiritually dead and he brings it to life. He takes our helpless heart and he makes it new. We could not revive ourselves. So according to his great mercy and love, God does it for us. And how does he do it? He does it solo gratia, by grace alone. I want you to notice as you look at the passage there in Ephesians chapter 2, the way that the argument Paul is making flows. Paul's developing his case. He's building up principles and pointing out motivating factors. And it seems to be flowing very nicely. And then at the end of verse 5, he pauses and he interjects something right in the middle of his thought. It's not that Paul got sidetracked here. It's that Paul wants to make sure that you and I know exactly what lies at the heart of his argument. He says that God makes the believer alive together with Christ and then he interjects and he says, by grace you have been saved. And he will repeat exactly those same words just a few lines later. By grace you have been saved. And I want us to note a few important details about that phrase. You, that's speaking to those who believe. He's not saying that everyone in the world has been instantly saved by the death that Christ died on the cross and by his powerful resurrection. Jesus didn't just choose to save the whole world indiscriminately. There is a reason that I preach this message with urgency. God is saving particular people for himself. And many will say no. Many will reject. Many will not receive. They will continue on in their deadness. So the you that he's speaking about, he's saying you have been saved by grace, speaking to believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And he says, have been saved. This makes the object of salvation a passive one. 
The saving is done to you, not by you. Not with you, it is done to you. You're the object being acted upon, not the subject doing the action. So you have been saved if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. And how has that occurred? It has occurred by grace. This means that by which, uh, this is the means by which God in his sovereignty is acting upon you. Your deadness is being overcome and you are being given new life in Jesus by grace. So let us think now about this word grace. What is this concept? Turn with me for a moment to Exodus 33. I want you to see from the Old Testament scriptures that grace is not a modern construct. It is not some newfangled idea that came about with Christ, but grace is something that God has been working in and among his people for generations since the dawn of time. It was not invented in the new covenant, but rather the new covenant manifested the grace of God in a complete and full way. So let's see how God determined to make Israel his chosen people. It says in verses 19, and 20, uh, 19 of uh, Exodus 33, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, God speaking to Moses here, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Nothing is mentioned here or anywhere for that matter about the worthiness of Israel to be God's chosen people. Do you notice that? God simply declares that he will be gracious to whom he wills to be gracious, whoever that might be. And he will show mercy to whomever he decides to show mercy. And that is why you see, ever from the beginning, when, when God covenants with Abraham, Abraham is not a perfect man. It says he does have faith in God. And that faith in God is, is, is the premise upon which righteousness is given to him. But it doesn't say that he is a perfectly righteous man. In fact, we see him making several incredibly huge mistakes throughout his reign. And then Israel, from that point forward, you see in the nation constantly struggling, constantly battling against their sin, going back and forth in their faithfulness and devotion to God. He did not choose the most faithful race in the world and make them his chosen people. He simply chose Israel because he pleased to chose Israel. Grace, at its essence, is a simple gift. It is the unmerited favor of God that purchases life for a dead heart and makes an enemy of a God into his beloved child forever by the work of Jesus Christ. And he does this not because he had to, not because the subject deserved it, not because that person's goodness required it or because God's goodness required it. God would be perfectly good if he saved none of us. Yet God in his good will chose sinners like us to come near to him. Have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever looked around you in the world and said there are people that deserve to have a relationship with the Lord way more than I do? I know I have struggled with that before. There are people that I've been praying for to receive Christ who seem so noble compared to me and my wretchedness. And maybe it's just because I know my heart of sin and I don't know theirs. But we should struggle with this idea. Why would God save me? 
We do because our mindset is naturally a mindset of, I get what I deserve. That's what makes grace so unique. His favor to us is unmerited favor. If you receive grace with an attitude of, yeah, that's about right. God should do this for me. I, I look around in the world and I'm one of the few that do good stuff. So God should save me. Then you don't understand how badly that you've offended God with your sin. Struggling with guilt for receiving grace when others have not received grace should always return your, your attention to gratitude to the Lord for the gift that he gave. It should make you thankful because you realize that you stand in this place not because of anything that you have done, but in spite of all that you have done. And just to clarify, that gift of grace comes only through one source. And I don't want to get into this too deeply because in two weeks we're going to look at solely Christus. But we need to understand that if it were not for the work of Jesus Christ, there would be no grace for mankind. Seeing us dead in our sin, God determined to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to become God in the flesh, to take on a human body and to dwell with you and with me. The very law that condemns us was the law that Jesus kept perfectly every moment of his life here on earth. People are so dead spiritually that they didn't even realize that God dwelt among them. Jesus came and the vast majority of people rejected him as a faker. They didn't even see that he was God, even though he performed miracles and showed the power of God through the works that he did and the healings that he performed and the way that he preached the truth with boldness. Jesus lived the perfect life that Adam should have lived, but did not live. We no longer have to be perfect because Jesus Christ contributed his righteousness to us by taking that perfect life, a life that deserved praise and honor and allowing it to be broken and crushed on the cross. Jesus suffered and bled and died for our sake. By dying like a sinner, the perfect God-man Jesus was punished perfectly and adequately for all the sins of God's chosen people. Do you remember that Paul said we were children of wrath? God's wrath is the debt that we owed, and that was what was poured out on Christ when he died on the cross. He was taking the punishment for the sins that you and I commit. He paid the debt of wrath in full with his own blood, being crucified as a sinner. But death could not end Jesus, and the grave could not hold Jesus. And on the third day, he rose again victorious, according to the scriptures exactly as they had said that he would. And all who place their trust in Christ and believe that he is who he said he is and did what he said that he did will have the life that only he could purchase for us. If we have nothing to contribute to our salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary, then who gets 100% of the glory for the change that God brings about in us? triune God does. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit acted upon sinners like us. We are simply the objects of His love and grace. We contribute nothing to the equation. And as we see next week, even our faith is a gift from Him. So why would God do this? Why would He save a wretch like me? If salvation is really happening to you, then the spiritual life that you are tasting will by necessity and without exception eventually cause you to turn your eyes away from yourself and to the one who saved you. 
Why would a perfect God, absolutely pure in every way, show favor to you? We are seeing in this act of grace and the giving of this gift that God is merciful. We are seeing his mercy. God is slow to anger. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He is unlike us in that we are so often quick to judge and quick to wrath, which is doubly bad when you are a human being with limited perception. And your idea of justice is usually very twisted and skewed towards yourself. When you act quickly on your anger and you judge others, you're almost always going to be wrong. But God doesn't act that way. God is slow to anger. Not that he needs time to process. He knows justice right away. He is slow to anger. But justice will by no means be ignored. It is delayed long enough for God to present the substitute we need so that not all of fallen man will suffer condemnation forever. The mercy of God is a gift that all men enjoy for a time. That is itself good news. God did punish Adam and Eve in the garden by making them spiritually dead. But he didn't take the breath out of their their lungs. They still walked the earth. So too do rebels to God walk the earth daily. They are given time. There is an opportunity there for the gospel to sink into their hearts and for the Holy Spirit to wake them up. The mercy of God is a gift that all men enjoy. But if that mercy is all that they get, it is not enough. Because God will eventually punish all sin. They need something more than just mercy. They need the grace of God so that the penalty they owe to him will be paid in full. For salvation to occur, we must experience a love that exceeds mercy. Thankfully, we're seeing his mercy in this act of grace, but we're also seeing his act of love. God is pleased to display his love by saving a people who would otherwise have been rightfully condemned. And let me assure you, friends, he didn't love us because we were lovely. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is spoken of by the apostles who are a shining example of faithfulness to the Lord God. And he's saying, look, even men like us, there's nothing in us that would make God love us or that would make us good enough apart from him. Romans 8.5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God doesn't say, clean yourselves up and come on in and we'll get some good clothes on you. No, he comes to us in our wretched, despondent state. He loves us where we are at because he knows we can't do anything different. So he must change us and bring us out of that mire to make known the abundance of his love. God is pleased to set apart for himself a people who were his enemies, children of the devil, and yet by his radical gift of grace, he changes them from the inside out and makes them his own. In verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, Paul adds a little more to the equation to bring the idea of sola gratia into even greater focus for us. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This expresses the sola part of sola gratia. Only the grace of God. The grace of God alone saves us. He does so without our works. He does so without our initiative. 
He does so without any stipulations, and it is not based on anything that sets us apart significantly better than the person who is not saved and living in God's grace. He makes us alive. Now you might ask yourself, is this rude of God? Is this pushy of God that he would come into the life of a person who is lost and, and, and in danger of condemnation and that he would just grab them out of it and change them and make them new? And this is the fear that some folks have when they hear the word election. They believe that if God isn't a gentleman and allows people to choose for themselves that he is somehow not being a good and holy God. But the word speaks of his people as chosen and as elect. And so we need to understand what that means. And I hope that as we look at sola gratia, that we begin to understand what that word means. The word sola means alone. There's a prefix in the English language that is the equivalent for sola. It's the prefix mono. So you might go to Disneyland, after all the quarantine's over, of course, and you might ride the monorail. Why is it called the monorail? Because most trains have two rails, but the monorail is unique and it has one big circular rail, right? Monorail, one rail. Monogamy, what is that? It is an arrangement that many of us are counting on. It is the concept of having one spouse. You don't give yourself to anyone else, just to that one spouse, monogamy. If we were to be ruled by a monarchy, what that would mean would be that one man or woman would rule over us. They would be the sole decision maker and everything else would happen according to their judgment and discernment. Mono. There is a similar term we can use to describe the way that God saves lost people. And it's monergism. Monergism. If you're not familiar with that term, it might be new to you. We've got to learn things on Sunday mornings, right? Monergism declares that God alone is responsible for our salvation. And therefore, he deserves all the credit and the glory for it. Romans 11, 5 through 6 says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So God chooses us. And it isn't based on our works whatsoever. It is, 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 is a choice that he makes simply on his goodwill. Now, this is in contrast to another way of thinking about salvation. It's called synergism. Synergism is a term that the business community has kind of commandeered and is using a lot today. Synergism is different than monergism because it talks about a working together. It talks about a cooperation. And synergism is great for lots of things. We as a church work together. God gives us all spiritual gifts. We've got to contribute those spiritual gifts to the health and the well-being of the church. We hope to work with other churches as we branch out in the world in ministry and missions and things like that. So synergism is not all bad. But when we, think about, when we think about salvation, synergism is not the way we need to be thinking. Synergism thinks of salvation as a process that must be completed through the cooperative efforts of God and man working together. Synergism holds that God cannot save sinful man without man's permission. He must work together with man if man is to be saved. Do you see how monergism is more consistently biblical in its view than synergism is? We were dead, right? How can you contribute to your spiritual well-being if your spirit is dead? We did not desire the things of God. The desires of our heart were only ever evil and selfish and destructive. We needed to be made alive, which is passive, in order for any good change to occur. Synergism appears to us 
because it gets our name on the marquee. Now, our name might be very small, might be little, and Jesus' name might be really big, but synergism says that you have a part to play in your salvation, that God's going to do his part, but that you've got to do your part, even if that part is just simple faith that makes us co-stars to Christ, and we like that. It tries to honor an independence in us when independence from God can only ever be destructive. We were not made to make decisions apart from the wisdom and guidance and light of the God who made us. So we're not co-stars in the divine drama of redemption. We join the fray once we are saved and God is pleased to make us useful in his story, preparing good works for us far before we were even made that we might walk in them and then training us up by his word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we might live out obedience to him. But prior to salvation, we're not a co-star. We're more like a prop. We're dead in our sin. We can't respond or contribute at all. We must be acted upon. We cannot and will not act upon ourselves in any meaningful way that would contribute to our salvation and our coming to life. Do you remember Jesus' friend, a man named Lazarus? Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. These were a group of siblings that loved Christ and supported him as he traveled about in Judea on his mission journeys. Uh, we read in the scripture that at one point, his sisters came to Jesus and said, you've got to come back home Lazarus, our brother, is deathly ill, and you've got to heal him. Nobody else can do anything for him. And so Jesus acknowledges this, but he delays in his return. And people were a little dumbfounded by this. Eventually, Jesus gets going. He makes his way back to where Lazarus was, and by the time he gets there, everyone is in mourning. People are wailing because this man, Lazarus, who was a faithful brother, passed away a couple days earlier. And we know the story, right? Jesus weeps with them. He is brokenhearted for their brokenness. But Jesus delayed for a reason. He wanted to put on display the power of God in him. So Jesus stands up and he says, Lazarus, arise and come out of the tomb. And I can tell you this much, friends. A dead Lazarus did not sit in the, the tomb and consider the offer. Lazarus did not weigh his options. He did not think carefully about whether this was the best choice for him or not. This was not an invitation for Lazarus to get up. He wasn't persuaded by Christ. He was commanded. And because God has the right to command even the dry bones to move, as we see in the book of Ezekiel, the live Lazarus walked out. And how did he walk out? By the power of God's life-giving command. Lazarus didn't sign up for it. He didn't ask for it. He didn't contribute to his resurrection. He was dead. God commanded it. Lazarus, being made alive, did what he was commanded to do. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've heard that before. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What a beautiful gift we have in salvation. And yes, we do receive this by faith. And we'll talk about that in depth next week so we can understand the, the part that faith plays in this equation. But for it to be a gift, it cannot be earned by us. It cannot be merited or deserved. 
our worship that we give to the Lord God when we come together on a Sunday or when we're worshiping him with our families, it can never pay God back for what he gave in this gift of life. It can never even come close. In fact, our worship is not trying to achieve that. We know full well that we cannot pay God back for what he has done because that gift is so incredibly priceless. So why do people try to add works to the grace of God? Anselm of Canterbury said that if you try to add to the grace of God, you have not yet considered how great your sin is. And I would add to that, if you think that God will only save you if you meet him halfway, then you have not yet considered the great, how great the love of God is. Next week, we're going to see that salvation is so entirely a work of God that even our faith is a gift to us. That God not only gives us spiritual life, he grants us the capacity to desire it, to enjoy it, and to trust him for it. May he receive all glory and honor and praise. The giver of life rose from the dead so that we might be brought back from death to life.